Welcome to another edition of the Tavern Voices podcast. I am one of your hosts, Kevin King, and with me, as always, is Tyler Crawley of the Tyler Crawley Show fame. Uh, what's going on, my friend? Well, this is this is actually the Tyler Crawley Show after hours, so they, they, they should know who I am. So they, they do say if you repeat a lie enough, it becomes truth. <laughs> So we'll see. Or the same thing with a joke. If you say a joke enough, like it's funny originally, then it gets annoying, and then it gets funny again. So I'm I'm kind of playing playing both sides against the middle. It's either a joke or it's for real. Either way, I'm going to continue doing this. We could just rename it the uh, right off campus. <laughs> that that would work. That would. I'm, I, I've I'd got okay a few t-shirts I could change with a sharpie, and then we're we're good to go. That's good. Cost efficient. Very conservative of you. Hey, you know, I, I I I tend to practice what I preach. That's all I'm going to say. That's a rarity. That's a rarity. Well, you know, last week we got into the uh, the gun debate and found out that you're um, a Marxist, and so I've, I but we did socialist. run out of time. Socialist. Socialist. <laughs> they, didn't they teach you the difference at uh, Pepperoni U? <laughs> exactly. See, I do know. I do know the difference. Uh, and so I prefer. I prefer socialist. It's it's much more cosmopolitan, and uh, it's it's much more in right now. You know, like a Democrat socialist. That's a cool thing. Marxists. You know, most kids don't. You know, Mark, Karl Marx isn't on Twitter now. They don't know who he is. So uh, I prefer you to use my my much cooler status, socialist. Well, I was going to say I'm a bigger fan of Groucho, but no one's going to know who that is <laughs> no, either. It's even worse. So I'm di- I digress. There's there's nothing positive coming from that. But in honor of you being a, a socialist, I, I totally forgot to mention this when we were talking pre-show. But I thought it would be it would be kind of fitting to to kind of dedicate this show uh, to William Buckley because I noticed you shared an article today. I did um, that. It's it's been ten years since he passed. So. Um, we, we are lacking in kind of true conservative leadership on a national level. So, you know, let's give a little shout out to uh, to Bill Buckley on this one. I agree. I, you know what? And and I decided today because I didn't know. I didn't see it until my show was over this morning. And, and I saw that uh, on Morning Joe, they had Jack Fowler on, who's the uh, current editor of the National Review. And I said, oh, my gosh, I, could, I, yeah, I didn't do anything all morning talking about it. And to me, you know, William F. Buckley is like the consummate like conservative. Like if I could be – if I could tell one person would say, how do you define a conservative uh, or at least my version of conservatism, it would be William Buckley. It would be someone, you know, who uh, was, you know, well-educated, somebody who just, you know, exemplified excellence um, in all areas of life. And unfortunately, yeah, I mean, we're, we're losing sort of that traditional perspective or traditional view of conservatism. So I decided that I know, I think you've read it. I want to get his uh, book, "Got a Man at Yale," and um, and read it. So, no, I actually haven't I've read that. I've just I've got his um, memoirs. Um, I think it's kind of like a it's a compilation of letters he wrote over the years uh, that's put together. It's it's fantastic. I can't remember the name of it, um, but no, I, I think yeah, definitely "Got a Man." Yeah, at Yale. no, I and I want to read that, and you know, I mean, because I I just I feel like. I, you know, I've, I've read some of the articles that he'd written and clearly I'm, you know, national reviews, my go-to magazine for pretty much any issue. Uh, and so I feel like I'm, I'm doing a disservice to myself by not, not reading more about William F. Buckley. So that is, that is, I'm adding a, um, what do you call it? A, uh, resolution, new year's resolution, almost in March, I decided to add a new resolution because I haven't followed any of my other ones. So maybe this one I'll actually follow through on. Uh, it can be a new trend starting New Year's resolutions in March. 
Uh, that's my that's my New Year's resolution now is to at least read one of William F. Buckley's books uh, and get to know more kind of uh, more about them because what I already know is you know obviously I like so I I, I think it'll just make me like him even more. We should both read it and then we can do like a book Ooh. club, uh, you know, like the View or something. You know, we'd, we'll just sit around uh, and and talk about the book as, as unfortunately we at the rate in which I read books. This could be three years from now, so I'm just gonna throw that out there. Get audible, you know, <laughs> just just have it read to you on your 10 minute commute back and forth to work every day, and you'll finish it. In That's six true. Months. That's true. Uh, yeah, because I forgot my my afternoon commute is 10 minutes. My morning commute is about five. So I will uh, I, I will look into. Then I gotta buy two, I gotta buy two copies because you gotta have a physical copy. You can't just have the audible copy. You gotta have the physical. It's why I can't buy books on. On my iPad, I like to have the physical copy, like just so I, it's like I could put it on my shelf and go, I read half that book and it makes me feel proud. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm glad I don't organize my bookshelf by what I <laughs> yeah. bought, what I've read part of, and what I've actually, no, I don't finished. think I've finished any books. In fact, I'm looking at a, a couple I have right now in front of me in this bookshelf in my office and I can see the bookmark sticking out because I use the receipt, you know, when you buy the book as the bookmark. And I can see them sticking out of every single one, which means I didn't finish it, but I put it on the shelf anyway. So to each their own. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, no, no, completely. Well, I, I was going to ask also, have you, have you watched Best of Enemies? No, on Netflix? I haven't seen that either. Stop. We're just going to turn the show off and let you go watch that for the rest of the night. Absolutely fantastic about Gore Vidal and William Buckley and the debates. Um in the what was it the sixty eight yeah. GOP convention? Well, did you know I was reading something uh, and, and I was it was an article in the National Review and they were talking about there's that one scene from YouTube that everyone remembers where he basically like kind of lost it and said stop calling me stop calling me a neo Nazi or I'm gonna like punch you in the face is basically what he said uh, and, and yes, they said that you know that a lot of people like they love that and they, and William Buckley said that was like a moment that he was the most embarrassed about because he, he lost his cool. Uh, and you know, he hated that moment, but so many people like loved it. And, you know, I'm, you know, I, I used to think it was great until he sort of, you know, I read this explanation where he said he was embarrassed because he lost his cool, uh, about, you know, that in that moment and cause Buckley never loses his cool. He's always like the, you know, the, the intellectual elite at the table, uh, who's always completely like just, you know, worst case scenario is the person he's making fun of or best case, I guess I should say is the guy doesn't even have any idea what he's saying. <laughs> like he's just, he's making fun of him and the guy doesn't even know it. Uh, and that was like one of the only times that he ever kind of lost his cool uh, um, in the media. And he said he always kind of hated that moment. And yet a lot of people look into it and like love it. <laughs> so I always thought that was kind of an interesting paradox. No, it really is. And, and, and that's why you'll love the documentary because it, it focuses a lot around that. And they, they do talk a little bit about how he would bring that up years later as, as something that he was not, yeah. not his proudest moment. Uh, but, you know, there's only so many times you can get called <laughs> a crypto Nazi from Gore Vidal to, uh, you know, everyone has their breaking That is point. very true. Uh, and, you know, it's funny because, you know, we had CPAC last week. And one of the, you know, there's always every year it's, it's worse and worse with regards to the criticisms of CPAC. And someone was saying that one of the big problems that we have right now in the conservative movement is that uh, there's sort of this fascination with sort of like the reality TV-ness of the conservative movement where, you know, people you see on Fox and people that have viral videos, you know, they get like the prime speaking spots and the true like intellectuals who are writing, you know, the white papers and these sort of policy books 
uh, are no one cares about. And I get that. You know, I mean, obviously, I'm in a medium where the goal is to get the most people listening that you possibly can. And if you spend all day talking about policy, it's going to be really boring. But it does seem that we've gone way too far one sided. Uh, and, you know, Buckley was probably the best example because he was someone that talked intelligently about policy and was one of the only conservatives out there and was looked at as crazy extreme at the time. And now he'd be looked at as a moderate at best. Uh, but he, you know, his, like I said, even his most kind of outrageous stuff was backed up by intelligence and policy and, and, you know, an, like an intelligent debate. And nowadays you just, now it's just, it's like shock factor and just, it's, it's, there's, it, it, we've gone too far to, 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 to the other side where now it's only about views and it doesn't matter if it has anything to actually do with conservatism or anything else. No, it's not. It's an articulation of personal opinion, and the debate culture is entirely gone. Yeah. I, I, it, I don't know w- what happened exactly, but now it's just everyone thinks. Well, we've got all the, all this, you know, fair and balanced kind of thing. You know, CNN, MS, they all do this. They bring on a panelist from each side of the topic. They give them each thirty seconds to say what we already knew they were going to say, and then the host gives an opinion, and they yeah. move on. There's no, there's no critical thought going well, on. Well, that, that that is true, and there was a great piece this weekend in the National Review by Kevin Williamson, who said that uh, a enemies list is not a philosophy; it's not a political philosophy uh, or an ideology. And unfortunately, that's what it's become. It's it's, it's if you zing the left, and if you know you make snowflakes cry, then you're a rock star. And it's no longer about like, well, what are your conservative credentials? What do you think about this? What do you think about that? It doesn't matter. And in fact, you know, one of the one of the signs that the conservative movement was 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 taking a turn was a friend of mine had told me that Rush had changed his, you know, what twenty year long uh, the Institute for Advanced Conservative Studies has now been turned into the Institute for Anti Leftist Studies, where. I mean, talk about a definition of what conservatism is now looked at as just being anti-Democrat. And that's a very troubling idea because I don't trust the, le- the Democrats to be ideologically consistent. And so what if they change and all of a sudden, you know, you know, this is an extreme example, but what if they go like pro-Second Amendment all of a sudden? Does that mean we have to become anti-Second Amendment because we're only supposed to do exactly the opposite of what they do? And it's very, it's a very scary idea if all we are is just the opposite of what the left is because that means that we don't have any ideological core that can be shifted at any moment uh and so and 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 that's one of the things that people that look at you know buckley and what he stood for and say man that doesn't exist anymore uh it's it's definitely a troubling troubling move i i completely agree and i don't know where you go i mean that's i want a firing line back you know that i I want a show where people can discuss ideas um, because I think that that's one of the, the biggest issues. And, and I, you've got this on both sides, right? You've got people who are just anti this. I think the left is as much anti conservative principles because when you break it down, a lot of the stuff that the Republican legislature in North Carolina has done under any other guise would have been championed by certain people. I mean, the, the increased education funding, um, some of the different provisions, um, that, that they've done, I think that people are just instantly, no matter what they do, they are against it, right? Because it's, it's become you're either Republican or you're Democrat. You, there's no middle ground. So what I would like to see is some sort of resurgence of a conversation 
because I think that we've got more evidence today than ever before that conservative principles are the most uh, the most long term you know sustainable options that we have, and yet nobody's out there talking about it. Yeah. Right? How, how many how many countries do we have to see collapse under socialism until we get rid of Che Guevara t shirts? <laughs> but 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 yeah, there's there's no true conversation going on. Well, I think also everyone you know. It, it's understanding that William F. Buckley also was not a politician. He, he did run for office. But because the thing is, is that when you're talking about politicians, there's always going to be – that's why we've always had a two-party system. It's always – the sides are always going to battle. But what we need to remember, because you are going to see that among Republicans and, and, and that's what you're seeing right now in North Carolina. Roy Cooper does something. The Republicans are going to bash him for it. When you know McCrory was doing the same thing, uh, the Republicans didn't say anything. Like in Senators, for example, there was a lot, you know, conservatives and Republicans were a lot quieter when McCrory was out there giving incentives. But then when Cooper did it, it, it there's a much, myself included almost. Uh, I was critical, but I wasn't as critical as I am now. Uh, maybe because there is also there's a hypocrisy and, 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 and we can talk about this a little later. But I think that there's always going to be that component. But that's why you need the pundit sort of class to be sort of the ideological core because a radio show host or a columnist or a TV show host is not beholden to anybody. They don't have constituents. They you know, are not fighting in elections. And so they can, they can be critical of Republicans and Democrats. And what's really hurt the pundit class is that it's become so partisan that that's why Fox news has basically become state run television. Uh, where and then when Obama was in office, they were the anti, uh, you know, state television, and the media was more in the tank. And MSNBC was, you know, fawning over Obama; and he could do no wrong. And now Trump can't do any, you know, anything right. And and that I think is is what's hurting and what's missing is that Buckley, yes, was a Republican, but he would call out Republicans and Democrats when they weren't being um, conservative enough. And you're not seeing that. There's no difference now. I mean, Sean Hannity is basically an elected official at this point. By the way, he just you know kind of fawns over Trump and doesn't dare to say anything bad about him. Uh, and I think that's that's what's missing. Is you don't is is you're losing the independence of punditry, which is sort of one of the reasons why it's supposed to exist. And uh, it's we're going to be worse off for it. I completely agree. I've never thought about it that way, but that makes. Entire sense talking about what I've that sentence made. I'm just going to start over. So that that that's, <laughs> that that describes perfectly what I've observed. There we go. Um, there we, well, but it, and it, and, it, and, we, and we can talk about a story that I'm actually my phone's kind of blowing up right now. Um, you know the story that you sent me that I hadn't even seen yet. And this is a great example: is Roy Cooper announcing he's going to increase all the salaries for his cabinet secretaries when McCrory did this. And, you know, and like I said, this story's in its infancy, so we'll see the way the press handles it. But I remember when, uh, you know, McCrory had announced he was raising some salaries, the press went, went nuts. Democrats went nuts. And, and the Republicans, well, you know, they, they kind of got in line. And what we're probably going to see this time is almost the exact opposite. Republicans are going to freak out about it. And the Democrats are going to kind of be like, well, you know, it was warranted because, you know, they're, they're very valuable and so on and so forth. But the real question is going to be, how does the press handle it? Are they going to be just as outraged or are they going to be a little quieter this time? 
No, I think I think that'll be a very good question. Um, and I think we saw that a little bit with the uh, with the Ray Cooper slush fund incorporated. Um, I don't think the media was very loud about it um, from from what I saw. And I, I was I thought it was kind of interesting to see his base get mad about it. Um, there was a decent sized rally. I mean, I don't I know, you know, there's there's different definitions for what a successful rally is. Um, but several people came up to protest at the Capitol that he was uh, kind of selling out and they voted voted him in based on ultra liberal principles. And here he was, you know, buddy, buddy with an, with an oil pipeline. <laughs> and a lobbyist. He put that lobby. I mean, the, the lobbyist to me was, was, I think, the worst because that's one of the things that Democrats and liberals seem to get the most upset about is this sort of revolving door uh, that exists. And to bring a petroleum lobbyist into your administration, you know, within the same – within a week – of signing on to a deal that you allowed a permit for a pipeline to go through the state uh, and then you got money and then you, I mean, just, it, it looks so bad. And that's why, you know, he came to Wilmington he did this thing about offshore drilling and he's making a big argument and he had his dumb environmental secretary out there making these ridiculous arguments. And he's so concerned, but he doesn't want to give the money up. And well, I think now he's sort of realizing that he's in some trouble for this. So he's maybe being a little more open to it. But it doesn't matter. I mean, that is such a bad story for him. Anything to try and deflect is just is not going to work. I mean, I, listen, I'm not a huge fan of environmentalists, but they're not dumb. And the idea that he, you know, he has an offshore drilling rally and that's going to sort of, uh, you know, be – that's going to make up for the fact that he allowed a pipeline to come through North Carolina and took money and hired a petroleum lobbyist. Uh, like I, I, I have way, I, I, I apparently have more faith in environmental activists than he does because he thinks he's going to be able to pull the wool over their eyes. I don't think he's going to be able to do it. Well, I think what's interesting about that story, and I think also the raises, is this is what the people of North Carolina are used to. And I know you're a, you're a fairly new resident, but you've been around long enough, Tyler. You've been here, what, 10 or 12 <laughs> years now? So uh, 14, 14. You're, you're, you're a naturalized North Carolinian. And, <laughs> um, but this is what people are used to, right? I mean, we had complete Democrat control of the, the legislature and the governor's office essentially for 150 years. It's always been cronyism. It's always been uh, taking care of themselves. If you look at what major roads were paved? It was on the way to a certain speaker of the House's district, or uh, you know, a, a, the Senate Pro Tem's district, or what have you. So this is what we've been enduring forever. And the Republicans took over eight years ago, and the left has been going crazy as if they're just upending all this amazing serenity that had been happening in our state for so long. And I think. Now Cooper comes from that old line. He's been around so long. He's part of the good old boy system. And so it'll be interesting to see how his base reacts to that. Because well, I think, I, yeah. I think they, they didn't know about this. The, the new left movement in North Carolina is very young. It is based in, in a very, very new population of people who think differently than the, the blue dogs who have been around forever. That is true, uh, the way, but the problem is, is that all the elected officials are, are you know, old as dirt, Democrat-wise. Uh, it's just the people that have been able to stay in their seats you know, during the purge, I guess is one way to refer to it, as all the Democrats got kicked out of office. And they've stayed there, I guess maybe besides like Josh Stein and who's the other guy, the something Jackson. They're like two youngest guys uh, who maybe are more reflective of the younger, more progressive movement. 
But what's so bizarre is that when you hear Cooper talk about things, I always love this because when he was running for office, you know, he argued that we're going to go back to the days of Jim Hunt. But he didn't say we're going to go back to the days of Beverly Purdue or Mike. He just completely forgot about Easley and Purdue and just went all the way back to Jim Hunt in the late 90s as if there were. I mean, seriously, the Democrats have wiped those two from their history books and for good reason. I mean, uh, you know, Easley is basically a felon taking that Alfred play. And Beverly Purdue did such a bad job. She couldn't even run for reelection. So I get why they're doing that, but it's just so funny to watch because they basically just erased 10 years where you saw the most egregious examples of what you were just talking about with regards to corruption. I mean, like I said, I mean, it's uh, easily is basically a felon. It's, it's so hard to figure out what exactly that, you know, his definition is, is he a felon? Is he not with the whole Alfred plea? It's always kind of a, um, a, a semantical sort of situation, but that's why they just, so we're going to go back to Jim Hunt. Not that it was that much better, but it was better than easily, easily in Purdue. Uh, and so they're trying to ignore that part. But I mean, let's face it. Who did Cooper hire? He hired people from Purdue's uh, administration. And so big shock, they're going to do the same crap that they did when she was in office. Like, why would they change? Well, what was their punishment? None. So why wouldn't they do exactly what they were doing before? Well, where is the... So to get to this story specifically, in case people haven't heard, um, Cooper's cabinet secretaries have gotten a 10% pay increase as of January 1st. Okay, so all of these people were making between 130 and 175 per year, and now they're up to 145 to 192. Um, dang, how, how do you get to be the HHS secretary? I, I, I could handle 192 a year. No, I'll tell you who I, what I want to be is I want to be um, uh, Susie Hamilton, you know, down here in southeastern North Carolina. She is the what is she like the natural cultural, and cultural resources? Yeah, yeah, I mean, and she makes what now? She's making what one fifty two or something like that. I mean, what yeah, is she? What does that even do? What does the cultural bad. resource person do? Like the HHS, you actually got to do stuff. Like cultural resource, what are you like? You go to a museum and go, oh, this looks good. Things look good. Congratulations. Nothing got stolen. You know, hey, uh, I th- I th- you know, I think historical sites are in there, Tyler. You know, you, you sometimes <laughs> have to drive out and see, you know, oh, revolutionary battlefields. That's so true. That's true. As long as Thomas Crown doesn't come in and steal a painting, you're a successful secretary of cultural resources. And it's like, and she's making 150 grand. I mean, t- that's what I would want. I mean, because that seems like the easiest job on the planet. Uh, and yeah, more power to her for getting that getting that appointment. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 not. I mean, so the I think it was what anywhere from a thirteen to like twenty five thousand dollar raise for most people. It was it was uh, ten ten to eleven percent. It looks like okay. One person got eleven. I think that was a rounding error, probably. <laughs> but, that would make sense. It's government math. <laughs> At what point does does anyone have a conversation about this, though? Because this is something that you and I have been very outspoken about for a very long time as far as, you know, what what uh, higher education administrators make. Um, and now you have these cabinet secretaries. And and it, it's at what point is there a balancing act? I mean, if this if, if there was a story that came out that, you know, the CEO of your local pizza store is making one hundred fifty thousand and everybody says we need to raise their taxes. But yet we use the tax money that we're raising on everyone to pay people in government administrative positions 
huge salaries. I mean, no, you're, you, to make $150,000 in the private sector, you are pretty high up in any corporation, especially when you start breaking down what the average salary is in the state of North Carolina. Yeah. Right. In the, tri- in the triangle, you're, you're at best going to be, you could get around that six figure number. Um, and that's the strongest economy in the entire state. So how, how, how do these people make so much money and no one ever bats an eye about it? It's not just the raises. I mean, raises, that's, that's, a, big, that's a big chunk right there. You're saying here's another you know, $13,000 a year, right? That, that's a pretty nice raise. That's, that's what the poverty line is. But to, to, to already be at such a high level, I, I, I feel like there has to be some sort of realignment. Well, we can't keep doing paying people so much. Well, it's it's funny you bring that up because it it reminded me of this is the second time this podcast I'm going to mention him. Uh, Kevin Williamson uh, wrote a piece in the National Review about uh, two or three years ago, in which he talked about how you know the left goes crazy about the Fortune 500 CEOs and all these people, and he goes, you know, first of all, we're talking about Fortune 500 CEOs. There's 500 of them, and there's what. 300 million people in the United States. So we're talking about 500 people out of 300 million. He said that what's actually worse and the bigger problem in our society is the example that he gave was his hometown somewhere in Texas where like the city manager made over $200,000 a year and for this like tiny town. And he said, there's 500 fortune, uh, 500 CEOs. There are, Probably, give or take, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 city managers in this country. And, and, and we're talking about in this little Texas town, they're making 200 grand. You go to like big cities like Los Angeles and other places. I mean, they're making insane amount of money. And he goes, that's how people really are getting rich, you know, because not only are they making crazy money, they're getting these amazing pensions. I, I was reading something about that Scott Peterson guy, the uh, first responder down in Parkland who didn't go, who didn't respond. You know, he was the first one there, but he didn't respond. He was the first non-responder. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. He, he got the first part. He just didn't get the second part. Oh, first responder. Oh, I thought you meant just to, sh- to be the first. He w- was getting paid, I think, 90000 or something like that and was, had a, was, was living, I think, in a trailer on campus. He has a house in town anyway, too. Uh, but he was allowed to live, you know, just to keep an eye on it, I guess, 20, you know, just to be there in case something happens. But so now he's, you know, he resigned, I guess, or I, I think he resigned. And so now he's going to get he resigned tired. Yeah, resigned tired. But so he's already retired deputy uh, sheriff. Now he's going to get a $75,000 pension and benefits for retiring from as a school resource officer or whatever it is that he was. And it's like sitting there going like, so this guy's going to get 75 grand a year. And he clearly was incompetent, and yet we're the state of Florida is still going to pay this guy seventy five thousand dollars. Like it's just, it's nuts what these people are making, and yet you know this, those same people turn around and go, "Oh, can you believe what what uh, you know LeBron James makes?" And it's like, yeah, he's the best basketball player that's you know maybe second to Michael Jordan that's ever existed, and yeah, so he makes you know a hundred million dollars. You're like the biggest loser on the planet and you're going to get $75,000. I mean, to me, that seems far worse uh, in the grand scheme of things than one of the greatest basketball players of all time making nine figures, someone making five figures for the rest of their life for being horrible at their job. Uh, to me, seems far worse. 
But that's the bigger problem is, and that's what Williamson was pointing out is it's, it's people like that. It's the cultural resource, you know, Susie Hamilton making 160 grand plus getting all these, all these other benefits that she gets. That's really what's, what's unfair in our society. It's not the fortune 500 guy that, you know, that guy is not the bigger issue. It's the city managers that are making six figures and bankrupting their state at that's at, uh, you know, in during the process. The, the unfunded liabilities are catching up fast. Uh, you've seen some of the more fiscally irresponsible states already in a big mess. I mean, Illinois is there. You know, they they're they're already having to cut back on pension plans, but it's going to catch up with everyone because you get to a point where you are paying multiple people for the same job, right? I mean, if if you are a teacher and you retire in twenty five years and you live to be, so let's say you were you retire around. 25 years from 22 was at 47. Yeah. So let's say you make it to 50 and you live to 90, right? So there's a 40 year period where you are now drawing a paycheck. So now that's at least one more. So now you've got a second teacher that retired from that same classroom in that 40 year period. And you're on the third one. Who's going to almost retire by the time you get done. So I, I don't understand how you can financially keep that going. It's, it's ultimately a Ponzi scheme because you're paying you're, you're taking money from right now to pay someone future while then just hoping that there's more people still paying in at that time to keep the whole scheme afloat. Well, it's becoming a Ponzi scheme. Social, Social Security is a Ponzi scheme because that money's going right in and going right back out and there's some left over. But the, the, the pension is actually – that is money that is actually supposed to be you know, technically um, set aside because you know when pension plans started – I mean, you have to pay into the pension plan over time. Social Security was a government welfare program that you got paid. You know, the minute the program came into came into existence, it was paying people out. At least the pension plans was you know you're based on how much you paid in and everything else. And so the pension plans, the reason they're having problems is because the cities and states are not meeting their obligation. In fact, North Carolina, I think, is one of the top pension funds, and it's still ninety five percent funded. So we're still five percent short. And we're one of the best. And it was funny because I actually had, uh, what was his name? Joe, uh, I think it was Giovanti on the show. And he is the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. And his argument was not only are they, are they not meeting their obligation, but politicians like to use the pension plan for their own benefit. They like to go, you know, if you're the you know, treasurer of California who has you know, how many trillions of dollars – you go to these you know, Wall Street functions and everyone treats you like you're God because they want to get access to that money and they want you to invest with them. And so these people get wined and dined and treated like, a, you know, these people are, you know, for the most part, morons. And so they love that. And then they use it for political purposes. So there, now there's this big uproar about the gun manufacturing industry. They asked Warren Buffett the other day, you know, the Oracle of Omaha, one of the smartest men in, in finance. And they said, you know, would, would, would would you be against banning investing in gun manufacturing? He's like, are you are you ridiculous? Like, why would I why would I make a blanket statement like that? Like, I have a responsibility to my shareholders to produce a profit for them. It's not about my personal opinion, my personal beliefs. It's about making money for my shareholders, and we're going to make twenty percent a year. That's what they've done for the last you know fifty sixty years, and if it involves us in you know investing in gun manufacturing, then we'll do it. We currently aren't, but I'm not going to say that we're not. And this is what these pension guys do is they go, we're not going to invest in gun manufacturers or 
you know, petroleum companies or, you know, any right wing company, you know, companies that actually make money. And so they're underperforming, uh, even I think the S&P index. And so it's, they're not only not funding it, they're missing out on these, these uh, bull markets because they're not investing properly because they're using it for political purpose. I mean, just it's it is such a messed up system. And you're right. I mean, we we are slowly getting closer to that point where we are going to see mandatory cuts. And I don't know. I don't want to know what's going to happen. I mean, think about how many people in North Carolina uh, are living off of New Jersey and New York pension plans, and what happens in five, ten years when uh oh they have to do like mandatory cuts of. 10, 20, 30%. I mean, it, it's going to be bad. And mind you, this is also going to happen why Social Security is also having the same problem. So, I mean, it is going to be, it's it's going to be bad. <laughs> There's no other way to word that. No, it, it it's going to be awful. And, you know, one other aspect of it as well, not on top of all of the things that you mentioned that are problems within the system, is that you've got to constantly update what you're paying people. So if, if you start and in 20 years, you're supposed to be making a percentage of, you know, your, your take home pay, but then 40 years from now, you're still on that pension plan. You, there's a constant conversation about cost of living adjustments because that amount that you started drawing starts to be less and less effectively in the economy. Yeah. Cost of living. So yeah. then they, so when, when you do these, you know, state cost of living adjustments for, for retirees, you've got an even bigger amount coming out. Right. That's that's a constant budgetary. Well, struggle. That, yeah. So it's just such a finite amount of money to, to promise people everything. I think that's the ultimate problem is that we've now just created such a, an environment where everybody it, 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 everybody thinks that they just work a certain amount of years and then they draw a paycheck and then they just go retire and have fun for the rest of their life. I'm just afraid that that sort of lifestyle is not going to be be here in 15 well, years. I mean, it's not, it's, well, technically, it's not here now. If you work in the private sector, they got rid of defined uh, benefits a long time ago, and now it's defined contributions. Uh, you know, that's why the private sector did that, and they're gonna and they're gonna have to do it eventually in the public sector, uh, or they're gonna face some some very 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 difficult problems in the future. Uh, well, that's specifically what I'm referring to is the public sector retirement. Yeah, plans. yeah. No, I, what I'm saying is, is that the, you know, the, the, the fact is the private sector did try the uh, defined benefits. And then after almost bankrupting and in some cases bankrupting companies, uh, the private sector said, OK, enough of that. And the public sector is like, oh, no, 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 we can do this. We got this. Because the thing is, yes, the public sector not only, you know, different than a company, is the public sector was not only getting employee contributions, it was also being matched by taxpayers. And and it's like, you know, whether or not we should do that, okay, fine. But once again, the problem is that these investments are underperforming, like I said, even the S&P index. And so if, if they were, you know, investing properly, like let's say they gave all the money to Warren Buffett and he was giving them, you know, 20% annual you know, returns, they probably would be in a, a way better situation, but they're, they're underperforming, underfunding. I mean, that's just that's that's the the worst of both worlds, right there. Um, you could maybe do w- without one, but to underfund it and underperform, that's that is the number one cause for this problem. Not to mention, it's just it's just from a, you know an economic standpoint, it doesn't make any sense, which is why the private sector stopped doing it. But yeah, I mean, it's it's this is going to coincide with the social security problems. <laughs> It's and, and you know what? And here's the thing that makes me angry is that you know you got people like the baby boomers and even you know older Gen Xers that like to laugh at millennials. 
Well, there was a study that came out recently and said millennials are saving money for retirement at a higher rate than any uh, uh, generation previous to them because they realize there's not going to be anything there. And so everyone's laughing at millennials, but you know, 10, 15 years from now when we have a pension crisis and all these people who, you know, put their faith in the government that was going to keep up, watch out for them. They're going to rely on their millennial kids <laughs> to be paying for their lifestyle and keeping them from going homeless because the government's going to be cutting their pension by, uh, by 20, 30% along with social security by 20 to 30%. And yeah. And, and, and the millennials are going to be like, see, we told you. <laughs> so no, no one's going to be laughing at millennials at that point. No, 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 not at all. And that's that's why I wonder when the realignment is going to happen, because to tie it back into to the Cooper administration getting raises, uh, the cabinet secretaries, um, you know, we had this conversation at UNCW when uh, when the, the economy tanked in 2009. And I believe it was uh, Tom Goolsby hosting, uh, you know, the, the radio show that morning we were on. And he says, you know, when times are good, you raise salaries. He's asking this of, of the UNCW's administration. But he said, when, when do you ever lower your salaries when times are bad? And I think this is a great example of the economy in North Carolina is great. So, well, 10%, let's give out over $100,000 in raises to cabinet secretaries. Times are good. But now it, when the economy tanks and 10 years, 20 years, whenever we go through another dip, who's going to be kicking and screaming to have their salaries cut? There's, there's never any realignment. They always just go up and up. Whereas in the private sector, you see that all the time. Salaries go down in the in the economy, what in the bad economy of the the late two thousands. You had a, you had a realignment. People had to readjust what they were used to making for the same job that they had been previously doing. You saw that when the unemployment rates, um, you know, were out for so long that people wouldn't go take another job because the jobs that were available at their skill set were not paying what they had been before they got laid off. Yeah. Well, and, and the thing is, is that it's not necessarily that they're going to cut the person's salary. Cause I mean, some, some private sector companies do that. Uh, others had happened because they might've been, you know, sales based. And so sales dipped. And so uh, they didn't get a bonus or they're just, you know, they're, they're uh, what they were making uh, at their company just ended up dropping off cause they weren't getting a commission, but it's when, okay, that person leaves and then you readjust you. That's something you never see. And, and that's something that, that is pretty common sense in the private sector where you let someone go because you can't afford them. And so then you say, okay, we're going to hire someone now. We're going to, you know, lower the salary by 30%. That never happens at all. And so it's, it, yeah. Never, and so it's not never. necessarily demanding, all right, we're going to cut salaries across the board by 10% because even the private tech doesn't really do that. Uh, but it's when someone then leaves that, per, that, that job and goes, okay, let's, let's lower that uh, salary and they just never do that. And well, in the argument, you know, in, in the public sector, the, the the big crisis is always when promised increases aren't delivered, right? And w when is that conversation oh, yeah. ever had on the, on the on the other side of the uh, of, of the fence? No, instead, it's it's all oh, the economy's bad. You're not getting a raise this year, or we're having to cut back your hours, or et cetera. But then in the public sector, people get mad. Well, you haven't paid us more in three years. <laughs> this is outrageous. Well, I, well I, don't, I don't understand. Most most jobs don't have guaranteed pay increases built in. And what's what's really even more frustrating is that not only that's happening while they have this pension plan and benefits plan. And so for the longest time, it was assumed and it was accepted that if you work in government, one, you had more job security, uh, you, know, you were safer in your, your job. 
and you made less, but it was because you got a pension and you got great benefits. Well, the pension's there. The benefits are still there. The job security is still there. And yet, for some reason, whenever I keep hearing about teachers or whoever, it's always, well, there are counterparts in the private sector. Yeah, the private sector, you don't get a pension. You see, you get benefits. Sometimes they might be good. Sometimes they might not. Uh, it's difficult to tell when you're talking you know, generalities here. But we just completely forget the benefit aspect. And now we just go pure salary and go, oh, well, they're making 15% less. Yeah, but if they're getting... 30, 40% value in their, in their benefits, then actually we should probably lower the government salary. And it, it, that's what drives me up the wall more than anything else is when all, all they talk about is salary per salary basis. And, and they leave out all the great benefits of, you know, for example, being a teacher, you get a pension. Uh, like I said, you get, you know, vacation time, you get uh, not only the local subsidies they keep out, but then you get, you know, healthcare benefits that <laughs> don't exist in the private sector. And I think they they scored it. I think it was the John Locke Foundation said that teachers get an extra fifteen to twenty thousand dollars a year in benefits. And so that thirty-five thousand dollars starting salary is now fifty-five thousand, which is pretty good for a state where the median, you know, wages or for a medium household is like forty-five grand. And so you have kids coming out of college making fifty-five thousand dollars. With no experience. Uh, to me, that sounds like a pretty good deal. And yet when the superintendent, Mark Johnson, made that comment, he got skewered. Oh my gosh, how dare you say that? That's the Oh my God. And it's that's the problem is that people are not being honest in the debate. Well, and there's also part of the honesty factor is, is there's no direct alignment with the responsibilities. You know, the, the thing I always explained it, if, if you're a nursing professor or you're a nurse in a hospital, there's a little bit different stress environment. Right. Yeah. I mean, should should you be a counterpart? Should should an RN teaching at a university get the same pay as an RN in a in a, in a hospital? You know, I, and and or an IT director. Right. Let's say that email goes down inside of Lenovo here in Raleigh. You know, is is that the same thing as if the email goes down at the state legislature or at um, the Department of Transportation? Is are those equivalent? Because they're not at all. Oh, no. Well, and, and, and to actually to make a better comparison would be, you know, to, to argue that someone working, say, IT in the, in the school system. I mean, yeah. I mean, because DOT, you could actually make an argument like, well, that could be someone important if there's an issue going on with, the, you know, a road closure or something. And even the state legislature, if they're in session. But a school very is, is not likely to need immediate emails in any situation, uh, you know, unless we're talking about, you know, some sort of incident happening at a school and they need to email parents. But other than that, nothing's really, you know, immediate that needs attention that could have an impact on the overall system. And yet they would argue, oh, no, no, you know, that person needs to make the same as their counterpart over there. It's just it's just it's 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 ridiculous. And it just and they do it on purpose. I mean, and they know that they can get away with it because no one's going to challenge them on it because the minute they can they can pull out, you know, all the emotional arguments they have to. And it's and 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 they'll have the backing. The press will have their side on this, and it just it it, it drives me nuts. Well, you know, I, I think it just ties back into the fact we can't have a conversation about anything, right? You know, I mean, if you feel a certain way about a topic, you're probably going to listen to what Tyler and I were just talking about and thinking of how awful we are and how we want all teachers to live in poverty, and <laughs> um, you know. Uh, it's, it's impossible to have a conversation about it. And I think that's why we've landed ourselves in the spot because you can't, you can't just talk about it. 
because you're going to get skewered over it. And as long as nothing changes, then we're going to be in a, a pretty bad situation. Well, that's why if you look at what's happening right now with um, this gun debate, not, not to bring it back a topic from last week, oh, but, here we go. <laughs> but you have, and uh, Charles Cook wrote a great piece uh, about this this morning for the National Review in which he was talking about that kid, David Hogg, who was one of the survivors from the school. And he has every right to get out there and make his argument. And no one's saying that he shouldn't be allowed to do that. But at the same time, if you then criticize his very extreme views on gun control, boycotts, uh, I mean, the rhetoric that he uses about people having blood in their hands, just, I mean, ridiculous. And if you go, hey, I, you're wrong. It's like, oh, are you challenging the survivor of a mass shooting? And I mean, the Democrats love it because, you know, what we were just talking about, you can't have a conversation. Democrats love it because now if you, you know, so he makes a point and he says something factually incorrect and you point that out. Oh, well, it's because you don't, it's because you want him, you wanted him to die in the shooting. You're, you know, you're an awful human being. You have blood in your hands. It's like, whoa, he has every right to say what he's going to say, but he's not above reproach. I mean, he absolutely should be questioned on some of the statistics and the rhetoric that he's throwing out there and they act like you can't. And so you're in this, they love it. The left loves it because if, you know, he, he, he has to be allowed to speak. And if we try and shut him up, then, oh, we're anti-First Amendment. And then if we try and question him, oh, well, it's because it's you, you know, hate survivors of mass shootings. You wish they all had been killed. And you can't win if you're on the right challenging him. That's the modern philosophy and of, of the left is that you remove – your counterpart's ability to question anything that you do. That's where we see every single argument. It's you can't speak on uh, abortion if you're if you're a man. You know you can't speak on racism if you are white. You can't like it. The, there's an erosion of the ability of people to to challenge their viewpoint. They they say that you're not allowed to based on whatever particular demographic you don't fit into. And I think that's the exact same issue with with this now. It's you can't you can't question him because you weren't you weren't in the school. He can do whatever he wants to do. Oh, one hundred percent. I mean, that's that is the left tries to do, and that is why you know you see these situations where the right seems to be at a disadvantage because I mean, let's face it, the right does have an abundance of you know white men uh, to go and make arguments, and so if you have a white guy debating a black guy about racism. Uh, I mean, e- even even if you're a, Rep- a conservative Republican and you're watching a debate about racism, there's just a natural inclination to go, well, I'm going to trust what that black guy's saying because, you know, he knows more about it than the white guy. He's probably never experienced racism. And so there's that emotional, I mean, there's nothing logical about that. It's just sort of an emotional feeling that you have. And the left knows that. And they try and use that to their advantage it works sometimes, other times it might backfire on them, but it does work uh, because there is that emotional. If you can get people to be emotional, you can win the argument because then you don't have to win on the merits of the argument. You can just win on the emotion. And the left, you know, that's that. Now, I'm not saying Republicans don't do that. I mean, it's funny. A lot of the people that are criticizing, how dare you bring Dave, you know, you know that are criticizing David Hogg uh, had no problem with Donald Trump on the campaign trail or at events bringing up, you know, family members of victims of illegal, uh, you know, immigrant violence and, you know, pulling on people's, what are they called? Heartstrings 
That was okay. <laughs> what are those things called? I don't have it. So I can't, I can't really remember I was what they say are. Harp's but. cord. And I'm like, harp cord. What was that? Uh, but no. And so Trump did it uh, to much success. You know, he talks about the wall. I mean, 90% of Trump's arguments, and, you know, we're going to run out of time here. Uh, but, you know, one of my big issues is trade. The entire trade argument is emotional argument lacking in any, any intellectual foundation. I mean, there's no evidence that any of the things they're arguing are actually true. But, man, it, it sure does make sense. And people, it, it, when it, it makes sense from the standpoint of not, like I said, with logic or anything that proves it. But, oh, yeah, no, I can see that. And I know a guy that got fired because his job got shipped overseas and, uh, you know, some illegal immigrant took this job. And so that emotional part kicks in, but there's no logical argument to it. And even some in some cases with illegal immigration, I mean, they've shown statistics that show that illegal immigrants are less likely to commit a crime than a native born person. And but it doesn't matter. I mean, if, you know, one crime is, is one too many to a lot of people. And, and there is some logic to that argument. But Republicans do it too. And it is kind of funny to watch Republicans get outraged. How dare you, you know, use emotion. And it's like, come on, man. Donald Trump brought those families. I mean, the State of the Union, he, every time he made an argument, he had someone to point to that was completely emotional. And, you know, there's a reason why you do that. It's, you know, it works. But let's not pretend that we're above it either, I think, is, is, is one. Is it, we're, we're, we're complicit in this, I think, is one of the problems. Absolutely. And I think it boils down to what we talked about at the very beginning of the show is that we have been reduced to a soundbite culture to where you just want to share things you believe on Facebook that are a quote that may or may not have actually ever been uh, said by someone that reaffirms your beliefs. You share that and that's your argument. And all you have to do is have, you know, no one person or have one experience or story you've heard of, and that should shape everyone's culture. And that's, that's, a, that's a big issue that I have is that debate should not be had over one instance. Shouldn't even probably be had over a multitude of instances. You know, there, there's, there's kind of a, a, a thing to be said for, for kind of the, the basis of humanity, right? There's going to be bad things happen. There's going to be um, atrocities. There's going to be good times. You know, every, everything kind of works out in life as a whole and politics meddles in that to such an extent that no one ever talks about, you know, there's a lot of, of negative impacts that come out of just basic policy decisions. Um, so whenever you're talking about, well, one person did this, so now let's go pass a law. What, what comes out of that law, that, that sort of physics reaction um, in the other direction is something that nobody ever takes into account. That's a totally different conversation now. That is true. That is true. And, and we are about to run out of time. So well, I mean, you know, if, if, if you want to cut me off, Tyler, that's fine. <laughs> I just hey, listen, I'm just I'm just sticking sticking to the agenda. That's that's all I'm trying to do. No, a- absolutely. Uh, I, guess, I guess we've kind of kind of drawn to the end here, but um, you know, I think I think that's good points, and I think that's one of the reasons to um, to kind of pat ourselves on the back uh, that that we started the podcast back up again is because I don't think that you can find a good conversation anywhere. And you and I are similar in thought, but different on things like we found in the gun debate last week. Um, yeah, but, but to be able to sit down and, and actually have a conversation and call out something for what it is, whether McCrory did it, Cooper did it, whatever, I think has, has a lot of merit in the, uh, in the discourse of our society. 
Yeah, I, I think that's it's also one of the one of the big questions that a lot of people that it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next couple of years. I, I'm actually really interested to see what's going to happen. You know, when Trump leaves the White House, whether it's you know I don't know if it's going to be uh, 2020 or 2024, but to see what happens to a lot of the people who seemingly have kind of gone all in with Trump and seemingly have been okay with making compromises on a lot of issues. Uh, do they snap back? You know, cause that's the big question, right? Do the people that have seemingly, um, changed, do they believe the new rhetoric or is it all for a purpose of them staying relevant or, you know, that, that that's the big question that I have is to see, uh, do people snap back? Cause that's, that's always what happens, right? You know, the Republicans, you know, when Democrats are out or in power, we make a big deal about the deficit and everything else. Then we get in power and, and double it. And so, but then when we get out of power, we snap back. And so is there going to be a snapping back from Trump where everyone goes back to the more Buckley conservative uh, view, or are people going to stay more in the populist wing if it proves unsuccessful from an election standpoint, the midterms will play a big part in that and what happens with Trump in, in 2020. And so that's what I'm most interested about. Is there going to be a snapback or has, or are these people really believing what they're saying? Because we don't know. You don't know. Um, a lot of people changed their opinion when Bush left office. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to a lot of these pundits. Are they really on the Trump train or were they just pretending, you know, to buy a ticket? Were they just <laughs> riding for free in the hopes they wouldn't get caught? And that's, that's what I'm most interested in seeing change. I, I think that it will be interesting to, to watch it unfold because I think, you know, we got started um, as modern conservatism was changing um, you know, in a post 9-11 world, yeah. you have Obama come in, which was a, you know, his his effectiveness wasn't as radical as we probably thought it was going to be um, as far as the policies he was going to get through. Um, but it was definitely a vast change from the traditional presidential environment that we had known for the last 30 years. Um, and, and I think that he led the way for Trump. And now you see just an, a completely different switch in another direction. You have a lot of Obama supporters who are going after Trump for the same things that Obama did and vice versa. And so I think it will be interesting to see what the, um, especially on kind of the national, um, you know, the national pundit level to see what happens because you are going to, I mean, people like Rush and Hannity, um, they're, they're not going to last that much longer. I mean, the demographic is, is vastly changing. So what takes its place will be interesting to see. Well, and I also want to point out one of the fun, funniest things I saw today was uh, Trump was talking about bump stocks. And he said that, you know, if Congress doesn't do it, I'll move on it. And, you know, I'll move and do an executive order. And I thought, man, that's the power. Of the I pen. said, man, that sounds a lot like I got a, I got a phone and a pen. And I said, I wonder, I wonder if that'll be met with the same opposition by the constitutional originalists on the Republican side who are outraged at these, at these uh, broad executive orders because I got a feeling it's not going to be. But I do have a feeling those who 100% backed uh, Obama with his pen and his, his phone are going to be outraged that Donald Trump would try and do something that Congress has the responsibility to take care of. And it's issues like that that really show you how things have changed. Oh, and ironically enough, it's on a gun issue. So it will be very, very interesting to see where where the cards fall on that one. All right. Well, we will wrap up on that note. And um, we, we've still got other stuff we haven't gotten to for two weeks now. So we'll actually have to do this again for what, the third week in a row next week or fourth week. I don't know. It's, we should have like a party. 
we, we should, we should celebrate the long. Do we get longevity pay increases at this point? <laughs> COLA. Yeah, that's right. Cost of living adjustments. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what I want to see happen. Well, thanks uh, for joining me again, Tower Crawley. I am Kevin King and we will see you next time. Adios.